What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. So if you have a Bible, feel free to turn there or open up your Bible app and read along. Again, that's Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, Park Church. How are you? All right, good. Good to see you. My name is Chris, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Park. Uh, And in just a minute, we're going to get into those verses you just read, Matthew 10, verses 1 through 4. So I'd encourage you to have your Bible open, ready to go there as we continue on in our series, Walking Through Matthew's Gospel. Hey, but before we do that, I just want to have you stop for a second and think back to the first time you were able to drive a vehicle by yourself. Can you remember that? For some of us, it's a little harder to remember, but Think back, think back to that time that you were learning to drive by yourself, nobody else in the car. Beautiful, right? Just you, the car, the open road. Do you remember that experience? Do you remember, was it exciting? Were you a bit apprehensive? Were your parents freaking out? Uh, I I was thinking back to when I learned to drive stick shift. Do you guys remember, like, how many of you drive a stick shift right now? I just got to know. You guys are, okay, I was about to say you're crazy, but whatever, that's all right, that's cool. Um, I learned to drive, I learned to drive a six shift. Do you guys, uh, some of you will remember Suzuki Samurais. Remember those? Like the, the wannabe Jeeps, all right? So, but, but we had a Suzuki sidekick, all right? So even less of a Jeep. And imagine, I was like about this height when I was learning to do like 16. And so I pulled the top back kind of because I had to, because my head would hit the top. So I, I'm driving this thing. It's in my neighborhood. We're learning. I had already been driving, but learning how to drive a stick for the first time. And my parents were really smart because they were not in the vehicle with me. All right. Now, I'm really, really thankful. This is back in the day when cell phones didn't have video camera and that whole thing. So, because this would have been documented and it would have been horrible. So, I just remember down and imagine my head above the bar. It was, it was terrible. It was just terrible. My parents on the side of the road, just dying, laughing. All right. So when I think about learning to drive and driving on my own, I kind of go back to those kind of traumatic experiences. But for you, do you remember what that was like? Instantly you went from being a, a passive kind of bystander to an active participant in the process of driving a vehicle. And in a sense, really, your life really was never the same after that. So the question is, what did it take to make that happen? What did you have to do? Well, it was a number of things, right? You had to reach a certain age. You had to pass a few tests. Some of you took a little longer on that, but uh, my, my kids, uh, I'm not going to do it. Anyway, stop. 
won't talk about my kids. You had to have so many hours behind the wheel uh, with someone riding with you, and ultimately you had to, to be authorized, right? You had to be authorized by the state um, that you lived in to be legally considered capable of driving on your own. So in a sense, authority had to be delegated to you. Right? This wasn't something you could just do on your own. Uh, you couldn't delegate that authority to yourself. It was an authority or power that you received from a higher authority. And what we see happening here in Matthew chapter 10, verses one through four, really we see Jesus handing the keys of the car over to his 12 disciples. And in a sense, he's saying, hey, you've been watching me drive long enough. If you've been with us, you've been following Jesus doing miracles and doing ministry. And he'd already called his disciples to himself and they were going along with him and they were watching him do ministry. But now Jesus is like, hey, you've been watching me long enough. Now it's your turn to drive. Notice that in verse one. Matthew 10, verse one, says, and he called to him, he called to him. Uh, that word call there is like a command. So like he commanded them to come to him. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. That word gave could be translated entrusted, bestowed. He caused them to have authority. All right, so think of that. He gave them authority. To do what? Well, that mission of inaugurating the rule and reign of God on earth was now being shared with his disciples and their lives and the world would never be the same. Amen. And that same mission is ours today as followers of Jesus. Through the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, his followers have been authorized and empowered to bring healing and hope into a world that desperately needs it, desperately needs it. So what do we see in these verses regarding this mission that would apply to all followers of Jesus? Please hear that, all followers of Jesus. So if you are someone who says, I believe in Jesus Christ, he's my Lord and my savior, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, this is for you. This isn't just for pastors or people who work in churches or missionaries, right, who go other places in the world. This is for all of us. So what do we see that would apply to all who follow Jesus Christ in this passage? Let me give you four realities of this mission that Jesus has us on. So if you're taking notes, there'll be four main points. Here they are. First one, prayer is the fuel for the mission. Prayer is the fuel for the mission. Now, to see this, I want us to go back into chapter 9 just for a moment. Matt did a great job preaching on this last week. Start in verse 36. So Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, right? He's traveling, sees the crowds of people. It moves him with compassion. Because, why? Well, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Okay, so there's lots of work to do. There's lots of ministry to happen. But the problem is there's not enough laborers. Okay, so what does he say to do? So 
he looks out, moved with compassion, sees the crowd, sees all kinds of ministry, all kinds of opportunity, all kinds of things that need to be done, but there's not enough people to do it. So what does he say to do? Look, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So therefore, based on that, here's what you should do. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So pray earnestly. Right? The word earnestly there could be translated beg. Right? So beg God to send out laborers in the harvest. And then 10 verse 1. Immediately it says, and he called to him his 12 disciples. Now, it is striking to me that the very first thing Jesus says to do when he's moved with compassion for the people and this urgency for the mission of God is that he says to pray. That stands out to me because that's not typically how we do it in the modern American church, is it? Notice what he says. He said, pray, pray. That's what you're to do. Not plan, not strategize, not recruit, not fundraise, right? Not build a building, not promote. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things. He just says, that's not the first thing. That shouldn't be the first priority. The first priority is pray, but notice not just pray, Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray specifically to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the one who alone has the power to bring people from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Amen? Amen. Pray to him. Pray to the Lord of the harvest for something really specific. What? That, that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into that harvest. Pray that God would send people out who are gripped by the spiritual need that is all around them. People who are more concerned with the spiritual needs of people than their own personal comforts. People who'd be willing to labor with Jesus as he draws people into life-giving relationship with himself. So why prayer? Again, none of those other things like strategy or planning or building a building, none of that's wrong or bad, but why start with prayer? Well, maybe this will help us. Listen to the words of Martin Luther, the reformer. He said this, prayer is the mightiest of all weapons that humans can wield. Let me say that again. Prayer is the mightiest of all weapons that humans, humans can wield. Uh, a pastor commenting on that quote said this. Simply put, prayer is the infinite power of God. Think of it like this. Prayer is the infinite power of God committed to the hand of mere finite people. It's the closest that humans can come to wielding divine omnipotence, all right? So as human beings, we will never, ever be omnipotent, all-powerful. But through prayer, we have access to the one who is. So it's the closest we'll ever come to wielding divine omnipotence. He goes on to say, nothing can prevail against prayer. 
not even Satan and hell itself. Yet tragically, he says, prayer is often the most neglected of all Christian disciplines. And that is so true for me. I don't know how your prayer life is, but of all the disciplines, it's the one I struggle with the most. And then he goes on to say, and our lives and our ministries suffer for it. So just a few questions based on what we just heard. When was the last time we were moved with compassion like Jesus was for our city? I don't know about you, but driving in today, seeing all the people, seeing all the buildings, I was praying, God, would you move? Would you do work? Would you transform the city by your gospel? But unfortunately, that's too rare for me. I don't always view the city that way. So for you, when was the last time you've been moved with compassion for the city? When was the last time you looked at the crowds out on the street or the restaurant or at the game or in the bar and and our hearts were broken for them, not looking down on them in some self-righteous way? That's a different thing. But having compassion in your heart being moved, heartbroken, For those who do not yet have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. When was the last time for you? When was the last time for me? And when was the last time we realized that that the spiritual need was so great. That that the harvest was so plentiful that we prayed for God to send more and more followers of Jesus into the city. See, it often goes the other way. Followers of Jesus leave the city. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 don't run from people, go to people. Run to people, don't run from people. Run into the city, run to the place where the people are. When was the last time we prayed for that? Prayed for people who would love the people of the city enough to bring the life-giving message of reconciliation with God to them. When was the last time? And then, and then last question for you here, this is a tough one. And when was the last time we realized that we actually are the answer to the prayer. When Jesus said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into the harvest, do you realize you and I, we are the answer to the prayer? Notice what happens in 10, beginning 10, one, right at the very beginning of that verse. It says, right after he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers out in the harvest, what does Jesus do? He calls to himself his 12 disciples and is ready to send them out to be laborers. He prayed, in a sense, he is the Lord of the harvest. So he's answering his own prayer as the Lord of the harvest calling his 12 disciples to send them out. So again, when was the last time we realized that every follower of Jesus is the answer to the prayer for laborers in the harvest? That means you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that means me. Next reality. Authority is the power for the mission. All right, authority is the power for the mission. Like if we're gonna go out and see people come to faith in Christ and see God's glory displayed, like we cannot do this on our own. 
We need a power that's way bigger, way stronger than us. So authority is the power for the mission. Look at verse 1, 10 verse 1. It says, And he called to him his 12 disciples, and look at this, and gave them authority or power, okay? Authority or power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. We are not sent out in our own strength to accomplish this mission. If we were, we would be hopeless. Hopeless. We cannot do what he's calling us to do on our own. And Jesus knew that. That's why he said in a very familiar verse, many of you probably have memorized, John 15, 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? Whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit because apart from me, Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And that just simply means nothing of significant eternal value and transformation can happen. Apart from the power and authority of Jesus flowing in and through us and what we do. Now notice where that authority comes from. It's not something you bestow on yourself uh, or generate within yourself. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's not that. Verse one, again, notice what it says, and he gave them authority. This is delegated authority. Delegated, not something we generated, not something that comes from us. It's something from outside of us. Delegated authority, and you have been authorized by God, the God of the universe, to represent him in the world. He has delegated authority and power to us to accomplish the will of God. And what is the will of God? Well, there's a lot of ways you can answer that, but in the passage, just keep reading. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction, notice that every, every disease, every affliction, nothing is too big for God. Nothing is too difficult for God on this mission. Nothing. Now, you, if you've been with us, you know the last couple of weeks we spent a lot of time talking about healing both physically and spiritually, and how that was a major part of Jesus' ministry and, and is a ministry that's continued on today through the, the people of God by the power of the Spirit. So today we are not going to spend a ton of time talking about that. But to put it simply, the mission of God for the people of God is to be authorized agents of healing. We are empowered agents of healing healing in both physical needs. So we care about bodies. We care about people. We care about the reality, but we also care about spiritual needs. So the question for us is, do we really believe this, that we've been authorized this way, that we've been empowered this way to be healing agents in the world? Do we really believe this? Do we believe that God's actually authorized us, empowered us by the Spirit to be his agents of healing? Do we really, really believe this? Do we believe that he has placed us right here in this city, in this neighborhood, 
in our classrooms, in our apartments, in our workplaces, and family that we're placed in, our gyms, wherever. He's placed us there for the purpose of bringing healing and reconciliation to the people in those places. So this, this idea, right, of disciples being authorized and empowered by God to carry out the mission of Jesus in the world was so important to Jesus that the last words he spoke to them revolved around that topic. Did you realize that? Like sometimes it's the last things people say that, that are recorded are like some of the most important things they ever say. All right, so Jesus got one more shot. He's about to ascend up into heaven. It's after the resurrection. He's about to leave them to ascend back to the throne. And he's got one more message for his disciples. And what is it? Well, let's look in Acts chapter one. If you would turn to the right in your Bible a little bit, Acts chapter one. Again, remember this is after resurrection. He's about to ascend into heaven. He's got one more time with them. So what does he say? Uh, Acts one, starting verse four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? It's so interesting to me, because if you go back to the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, what did he tell his disciples? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so therefore now you go into all the world and make disciples. Like, that's the command, go. But, right, Acts 1, before you go, don't depart Jerusalem. Don't go yet. I want you to go. But there's a right time and a right place for that. Right now, that's not it. Don't depart, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said to you and you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost Sunday, right? Not many days from now. Now go down to verse 8. Remember, this is his last message right before he sends up to the Father. Verse 8. And it's interesting, if you read the whole context, what are they debating about? End times views, right? Like, Jesus, is this the time you're going to establish your kingdom? And man, Christians love to debate that kind of stuff. And Jesus is like, forget it. Here's what's most important. Not that it doesn't matter, it does. But he says there's actually something more important. Here it is, verse 8. But you will receive what? Power. You're going to receive authority. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, when Pentecost happens, the Spirit comes, he indwells you. He's bringing the authority of God with him. He's bringing the authority of God, the power of God. And then, hey, I already told you, go be my witnesses. After this happens, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But notice, not until you are authorized, not until you are empowered, not until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and dwells you and empowers you to do what I'm calling you to do. Why? Because we are hopeless and helpless apart from the authority of God, apart from the power of God. The authority of God is the power for the mission, not our own strength, our skill, our gifting, our ability. It's the delegated authority of God that's the power for 
the mission. Now, third reality. Go back to Matthew chapter 10. The third reality for the mission is this. Unity, not uniformity, is the uniqueness of this mission. Timely, timely. Unity, not uniformity, is the uniqueness of this mission. Now let's read verses two through four again. So the names of the 12 apostles are these. Do you notice the shift that happened there? Verse one, they were called what? Disciples. Disciple means learner. Now they're called apostles, which means sent out ones, okay? So so there's a shift. If you are a disciple, you are a learner, you are also a sent out one. If you're a disciple, you are sent out. Okay, so the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you, all right? When I found out I was preaching these verses, like Pastor Gary delegates this out to all the different preachers. And I was like, hey, thanks a lot, Gary. <laughs> I, techni- I have like four verses and three of them are names. <laughs> like I should be able to have a 10 minute sermon and all God's people said, amen. amen. Sorry, that didn't happen. <laughs> I can milk anything out of the Bible. All right? We can make it happen, all right? So, so like, what am I going to do with three verses of names? But as I started diving in and really getting into it, I realized, oh man, there's a lot going on here. There's more than just names. One, let me give you a little theological point that's pretty amazing. The fact that he picked 12 disciples slash apostles to represent him and his ministry in the world is no accident. All right, like 12 is a really, really important number in the Bible, and most theologians will tell you that they are symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what what Jesus is doing here, he's he's reconstituting Israel, right? Which, by the way, is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It was prophesied that when the Messiah comes, this would happen, right? And he's bringing them together to fulfill the original mission that God had given his people, The mission that unfortunately Israel had failed to accomplish, which was this, to be the light of the world that would draw all nations to himself. That was the original mission. And now Jesus is like, okay, I like my mission. I like what my plan was. I'm not giving up on my plan. I'm going to do it. And now it's going to, again, go into the whole world and they would be the salt and light of the world. But second, and this is primarily the focus for us today. In this listing of disciples, we see something supernatural taking place. We we see something that really cannot happen anywhere else in the culture. People from all different walks of life, different political views, different economic situations, all united around One mission, one mission, the mission of Jesus Christ. Where do we see that? Well, look at the list. 
And unless you see men who are who made their living in the fishing industry. And I think a lot of us think, weren't all the disciples fishermen? No, they weren't. Some of them were. Some did that. We have a couple sets of brothers there. One was a tax collector. That was Matthew, right? And so a tax collector meant that he was a Jew who worked for the Roman Empire. So he would collect the taxes that Rome required. And then on top of that, he would get as much from the people as he possibly could to make himself rich. All right, so guess what? The people despised him, okay? So he was a despised member of the Jewish community. And then right alongside of him, you have another disciple who was called the zealot, Simon. Well, what was a, a zealot? Well, what made him a zealot was he was involved in the pursuit of overthrowing the Roman Empire and its rule over Israel, right? So you have a guy working for the Roman Empire and a guy who hates the Roman Empire and is actively trying to overthrow it, all working together, all worshiping one savior, all a part of one church, believe it or not, on one mission, before Simon became one of Jesus' disciples, he would have hated Matthew. He would have despised him and everything he stood for. A way to think about it, kind of in modern terms, it'd be like a, a Navy SEAL and a member of the Taliban working together for a common cause. Right? We, we often, I used to think, oh, probably like Republican and Democrat. No, like way more divided than that. Navy SEAL, Taliban, right? Unheard of in our world. It doesn't happen that way in our world. But yet, in Christ, they are made one. United around one king and one kingdom, willing to lay their lives down for one mission, the mission of Jesus. And almost all of them were martyred for their faith. So that literally happened. And that happens only in Christ. Now here's the beautiful thing. So good. Jesus did not just long for unity among his original disciples. Come on. We're like, oh, that's nice for them. Great. I'm so glad they got along. <laughs> and we walk away, right? No. It's not just his original disciples. He longs for unity among his followers today. He longs for unity among us. Now notice, not uniformity. Matt mentioned that earlier. Not uniformity. That's the culture's version of unity, by the way. The culture's version of unity is uniformity, right? What Jesus wants is unity. He doesn't want us to be robots, amen? He doesn't want us to be robots who all look the same, act the same, have all the same political views. That's not the kind of unity he's looking for. That's uniformity. Jesus wants it so badly that he actually prayed for it. If you would, real quickly, turn over to John chapter 17. To the right again, John chapter 17. This is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And from the beginning of the chapter, he's been praying for his original disciples. But there's a shift that happens in verse 20. And he begins to pray for all who would believe their word, which would be us. Right? Anyone since the original disciples who's believed in Christ. So look at verse 20. Jesus is praying to the Father. Notice what he says. 
I do not ask for these only. I'm not asking only for my original disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Us. That they may be, what's the next word? One. That they may be one. He's talking about unity. That they would be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, right? So the church is to reflect the character and nature of God. God is a trinity, three in one, all unified together. The Father and the Son here, unified. And he's saying, that's how I want my disciples to be. That's how I want them to be seen in the world so that they may also be in us. Why? Here it is. So that the world may believe that you sent me. There is power in unity among God's people. The world might actually believe if the world could see it. Again, I'm not making that up. It's, it preaches, but I'm not making it up, right? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be what? One, unified. Even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become not just one, but perfectly one, so that, here it is again, and then he's going to add a little something to it. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. God, I'm praying, Father, that they would be one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you love me. That's what Jesus prayed for. That kind of unity, that kind of display of the character and nature of who God is. So I need to ask this a question. We need to be really, really honest as God's people today. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to just stop and let God speak to you now. Here's the question. Do the people of Denver know that Jesus was sent by God and that God loves them because of how unified the followers of Jesus are in this city? That's a fair question based on what Jesus just prayed. Are we known by the city for our love and unity? As not just Park Church, but Park Church, and then broader than that, the church of Jesus in the city. Is that what we're known for? Our love and unity. Or are we known more for our division over our political views? Are we known more for what we think about masks and vaccines and social distancing? Is that what the world thinks of when they think of the church? or by how much we love each other. Hmm. May Park Church be a place where anyone could walk in and say, 
I don't totally understand or agree with all that's taking place in this church, but I know one thing. They love each other. And there's a love and a unity that I cannot find anywhere else in the culture, in this place. There must be something behind it. There must be something real about that. May we be known for that in this city. Amen? Amen. Last. Last reality. Jesus is the Lord of the mission. <laughs> Jesus is the Lord of the mission. Man, that is really good news. <laughs> The mission isn't dependent on me. The mission is not dependent on you. Amen? Yes. Jesus doesn't need us to be perfectly obedient and faithful for his mission to advance. Jesus doesn't need me to preach the perfect sermon today to make disciples and build you up. Why? Because he's the Lord of the harvest. He's got it under control. He's faithful, even when we aren't. He's laboring in the harvest, even when his disciples are distracted by a million other things. However, and I'm not going to let us off the hook because of that. <laughs> However, in his grace and in his love and in his compassion, Jesus, the Lord of the harvest invites us. He invites us into the joy. The joy. Do you see the mission as joy? He invites us into the joy of being actively involved in his mission in the world. The harvest truly is plentiful. It truly is. It doesn't take anything to see that. So will you accept his invitation to join him in the harvest? That's the question. Will you join him in his harvest with his people? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity you've given us to open up your word. And just up front, I just want to thank you that you are the Lord of the harvest. That, that this isn't dependent on us and our own strength and our own power. You are God. You are the Lord. But what an incredible privilege it is that you invite us into that work. That you desire to work in us and through us to see amazing things happen in the world. So God, may we be a people who have your eyes. May we be like Jesus as we look out over the people. We're moved with compassion, not self-righteousness. Not pride, not arrogance. We're no better than anybody else. But we, may we have your eyes to see people the way you see them. Be moved with the heart of Christ and have compassion. And be what you've called us to be, laborers in your harvest in this city. For your glory and the joy of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.